Welcome to Technically Minded, a podcast brought to you by Codera. We get technology leaders together to discuss what's happening in our world. Our discussions are always fun, lighthearted, and frankly opinionated. But hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters and what to pay attention to and what to ignore. Today we're going to pick up our blockchain podcast here with episode three. I like to call it 10 Reasons Blockchain Isn't What You Think It Is. With me as always is Jason Goth, our CTO. Hey Jason, how are you today? I'm great, Ben. That's awesome. So let's do something kind of fun. You ready? You like fun things, Jason? I do. <laughs> okay. Very Especially good. on a Friday afternoon. That is great. Because what I'd love to do is just kind of go back and forth. We've spent a lot of time now talking about blockchain, crypto, Web3, etc. Over many months of studying, researching, staying abreast of what's happening in the world, and a lot is changing, by the way. But I'd love to just kick it off over to you and say, what's the number one thing that you think and we'll kind of go down the list back and forth of what, why blockchain is not exactly what people think it is. Oh, where to begin? There's so many things that people think the blockchain is that it is not. Um, I guess I'll start. The first one is it's very inefficient and doesn't scale. Mm-hmm. So the, there's a big belief that, well, it's distributed. It runs on thousands of computers. It can handle any volume scale worldwide and that's really not the case it's really designed to be inefficient i saw a analysis the other day that the ethereum virtual machine or the ethereum world machine as they would like to call it has the same processing power or one five thousandths of the processing power of a raspberry pi wait a minute you're saying one five thousandth not five thousand times stronger but one five thousandth of yes. a raspberry pi is what the the processing power of the ethereum virtual machine is but the cost of one second for the cost of one second of transacting on it you could buy 60 raspberry (laughs) pies okay so you're spending one thirty thousandths of your resources optimally or as optimally as you could Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a good reason to to move over to blockchain. We should do that and it way. really has to be. And people think that that the well, that'll be solved by technology, Moore's law, things will get faster, whatever. But those are really not problems in the blockchain. They're design choices. In other words, for it to be open and permissionless, there has to be something to prevent bad actors from taking control. Well, they have built into the protocol those inefficiencies through proof of work and difficulty and other things to keep someone to make it more expensive for someone to take control of it than the value that they would receive out of it now the cost of that is that it's very slow and inefficient and so it's not something to be fixed right it's something that's designed in right and so that's i think probably the the biggest misconception about the efficiency and scale. I think it's a really good point. We talked a bit about this previously, just that there is a trade-off here that's taking place between centralization and efficiency and decentralization and trustless environments. And that trustless environment requires us to build in these inefficiencies so that we can guarantee that it is what it is in some sense. Sure. I think it's a good one. I'm going to go to, I'm going to play off your decentralization a little bit here. I think I hear most of my friends who are super into this space talking about, you know, a sort of lack of trust of government organizations in general. And 
I like to say that decentralization is actually just code for a different set of overlords. And, and really what I mean by that is that, you know, there are some 6,000 miners today doing these proof of work, deciding what happens on the blockchain, what features to have, what forks to do, so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, there's just a different group of people. And I think what's particularly worrisome about that, from my perspective, if you believe that, hey, no, that's good, that's better, that's better than one entity doing it, is that in essence, what's going to happen as electricity becomes harder to find, cheap electricity becomes harder to find, as we continue to evolve new GPUs or new uh, processing power specifically for these things, like ASICs, for example, the, the number of miners in that network is also going to decrease naturally. And so that means that really whoever currently has scale has an advantage and will continue to have some advantage and be able to buy new chips and be able to have that cheap electricity, which means they can do more processing more efficiently and cost-wise. But that also means that it will lead to consolidation just naturally. This is a very natural thing that happens in all of the economic situations that we see. And so really what's going to happen from my perspective, I look around the corner a little bit, is rather than having 6,000, which is already not that many, frankly, um, we're going to end up with far fewer. And, and even if even if somehow we make a new change to the blockchain so that we maintain at least 6,000, for example, even today, if you look at that, very few of those are actually mining the transactions themselves, right? I think you shared a stat with me um, that you'd found, which was 0.1%, 0.1% of the miners end up doing 50% of all the work. That's right. You can extend that to say 10% of the miners do 90% of the work. That's staggering. And so what that means from my perspective is that it's not really decentralization. It's just a different set of centralized actors deciding what's going to happen with the fate of whatever blockchain you have to be on. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, you've seen that happen. You've seen, you know, either soft or hard forks in different blockchains where, you know, some, you know, DAO, something happened. Let's, let's fork that. Well, you know, the people on the other end of that fork don't always agree with it. Right. And, um, but who do they appeal to? Yeah, there is nobody really other than these, than the miners. And right. They're the ultimate authority, the, the one centralized authority. And, you know, I think the argument would be, well, then we're letting, you know, the, the majority rule, but that's the, you know, it, I used that analogy in the, in the first blockchain episode we did where it's, two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. That was, right. I can't remember who said that, maybe Benjamin Franklin about democracy, but it, it is a that kind of a true majority rules democracy, which I don't think is necessarily what people want, especially when you don't necessarily know who that majority is, mm -hmm. right? In, in terms of it's the majority of the miners, I should say not of the people using it, but you know, who, who, where is that majority of those miners and what are their values? Well, we don't know and we don't get to elect them or change them if they make decisions we don't like. Yeah. And to your point, well, the alternative is to let me try to put enough processing power to somehow impact that. But if, if you're not there already, it's very unlikely that you're going to ever be able to afford to do that. You know, there are some, some proposals around, for example, about randomly assigning miners right across the mining pool and those kind of things. And, you know, I think maybe those could help, but then they, they come with their own problems. Then, you know, again, those, those are the trade off, you know, their trade off choices. Like, well, we can, we can do that to prevent anyone from any one entity or small set of entities from taking over, 
well, that's great, but now you just get a whole new set of trade-offs, right? So, Well, and I think even if you have randomly assigned it, assume that one entity controls 50% of the people you could assign it to. Right. Well, then they still have a 50% chance of getting that transaction in, in the same way. So it seems problematic no matter really how you slice it because the economics slash the design of the protocol demands something like this to be implemented. Yeah, it is uh, in a lot of ways the Pareto principle, right? Pareto distribution people. Mm-hmm. The rich get richer. Yeah. All right. What's next on your list, Jason? I'm going to go with you know the high risk of loss, and I think people often think of the the risk of loss as coming from fraud, which it certainly does. I I love Molly White's blog. The I think it's titled Web 3.0 is going just great, and <laughs> she details out the amount of fraud. I mean, I think there was this year something like 1.8 billion dollars worth of fraud that billion she, with a b billion with a b that mm-hmm. she had or, or the blog had collect or researched but there's also a lot of potential loss i think even more potential loss just from error and mistake or accident and these are like these systems are really difficult to to develop and do right they're very decentralized you know in terms of protocol they do a lot of concurrency Right, which is really subject to race conditions and these other difficult technical challenges. And it's very likely that you can, you know, lose all your money, right? Lock it up, suspend it, put it into an address that can never be spent, burn it, like just by sure accident. And, and many people have done that. And, and I don't have any, I don't know what the numbers are, but I know there were several people just last week that put like over $3 million and just, oops, accidentally burned it. Well, yeah. it's gone, you know, and and so people feel like it is a safe place to put currency, mm-hmm. right? Or if it's not currency, a contract or some token, you know, ownership NFT. token into mm-hmm. some club or picture of your favorite bored ape, whatever it may be, but as if it's entirely safe. But I would say it's it's incredibly unsafe. I think that's right. And I, just to the board ape, I mean, that just happened this week, right? We, we had a very famous actor. Uh, who was it? Seth Green. Is that right? He had his, uh, his board ape actually stolen from him. Now, again, that was probably his mistake. <laughs> he seems to be have uh, hacked a bit here, spearfished. But I want to go back to the other thing you mentioned real quick, which is the complexity of the system here. And, and you know, for those of you who are, who are joining us a little bit later, just, just this past week here, in real time, Terra USD, which was a stable coin, is about to be pegged to the US dollar, um, had a problem. <laughs> it effectively went to zero. I think, I think that's an <laughs> understatement, had a problem. <laughs> that's right. And so so what's interesting about that is is all the consequences, no doubt, for people who had invested in Ander and Luma directly, but also all of the things that happened elsewhere in, in the crypto world. And there was a great example where effectively, because of, it's not exactly a race condition, but it's similar, these the price that trading on Terra actually was paused, and the or one of the oracles that was reading this and making executions on these smart contracts didn't realize that it was paused because it wasn't designed to do that necessarily. And these contracts weren't written to imagine a world where the price was paused, and so effectively people were able to issue loans and drain a huge amount of money. I mean, millions and millions, I think it's like eight point three million dollars, thirteen million, sorry, thirteen point five million dollars from it and effectively do that because there was this this set of scenarios, set of conditions that were never imagined originally. And I just don't know how you 
ever imagine all the ways these things could happen. Well, you can't possibly imagine all the ways uh, things could happen, right? And that's something that, you know, from a programming standpoint or from a software development standpoint, we know, like if you have a an if statement, well, that puts two paths in your code. Let's like, mm -hmm. have two if statements and let's put four paths in the code. Well, you can see how that goes. It doesn't take very long. There's a lot of, you know, internal and external conditions that make testing every possible state uh, of an application virtually impossible. Jo Joe Armstrong has a great talk on this, uh, the inventor of Erlang. He had a talk on this on YouTube called The Mess We're In, where he recounted the number of possible states, right? Mm. Uh, certain uh, systems could get in, you know, and it's, it's really unimaginable. So there really is no way to possibly test it. Um, the difference that we have, and this goes back to maybe one of my, my point earlier about safety, is that in most systems, and we build some web application, it's got all kinds of bad states that it could get into and, and combinations of things that could happen to lead to unexpected results or loss. But we've got those things locked down behind many layers of security and firewall and everything else. And so, yeah, that, you know, we work on those, we find them, go to fix them, you know, we continue to improve on that, but we have some other layer of protection in that to cover for the fact that we're not perfect mm -hmm. at those things. And, and I think that's the, one of the big challenges with, with blockchain is that those other protection layers don't exist. Right. It's fully open and transparent. Well, and to your point, I don't know how they could, right? Yeah. I mean, I, they, I think that's the one thing people do get right about blockchain. It is that it's fully open and transparent <laughs> and not really understand, like, understanding the problem with that. Right. And I think like if I were just to summarize that, that example and, and the other one I have here is it, I'd call it something like all of these externalities, the, the vast number of combinations of states that you could end up in, along with all the things that are happening elsewhere in the world, prevent that code from ever being really complete. You can't test all those scenarios. And I think a great example of this, I give you one, the second one would be around flash loans. So we're seeing all these these DAOs, these decentralized organizations that are built in smart contracts on the blockchain, really clever, and they're self-governing organizations, companies, entities that hold real assets being effectively hacked. It's not really a hack, though, is the fascinating part here. So people will end up buying a majority share of that company through a loan, at much like you know some hostile takeover of a corporate publicly traded company, take all the money out of that company, which you couldn't do in, in the real world, and then immediately return and repay back that loan, following all of the rules along the entire journey. And it's just remarkable <laughs> how clever that is, first of all, but also how powerful that is in terms of like literally defrauding effectively a bunch of people who put the money into something that thought was real. And I think that's, that's sort of the tricky part of all this. Yeah, and you, you stole mine because that was what I was going to say next was the externalities around everything. Now, I do think there's many other types of externalities, really, and I think that's a that's something I, I think people miss. You know, even the term like DAO, you know, a Decentralized Autonomous Organization, mm -hmm. has the connotation or the belief that these things are self-contained, right? And that's the, the challenge with software is that they're never self-contained. They're always part of much larger ecosystems. Could be users, right? In, in your flash loan example, it is 
you know, a, a person out there on, on the web or, or a user uh, of the system behaves in a way that wasn't anticipated. Yes, that's an externality, but there are many other possible ones as well. Um, you know, some, you use the example of an Oracle sending bad data, right? That's something that is not controlled by the systems on the blockchain or the smart contracts or anything themselves. All of these external events. Other great examples might be laws, for example. There are, there are many, you know, folks that think that some of these smart contracts should be regulated like a, a registered security and that then the companies then have the same type of reporting requirements and those type things. You know, I think <laughs> you mentioned uh, Tara earlier, a lot of people are suing them, you know, like, well, you don't want the government involved until you lose all your cash and then you want uh, the government, you know, the courts to step in and, and provide some type of restitution. And so there are always these external components in, in shipping, right? You know, delivery of physical goods, right? If I actually want to buy something with this, someone has to deliver me, you know, the car that I buy. And all of those things external to the system are all part of the system and they can't somehow be separated from it. And that's one of the, you know, tenets of systems thinking is that they can be a bit chaotic, whereas impacts in one part of a system may have entirely unintended consequences in the other parts of the system. Well, that's very true. And with blockchain, the challenge is that those things become immutable. They can't be changed. And so do you really want to base your system or the, the systems that you're working in where they're chaotic and things can, you know, different externalities can cause unexpected behavior, but it can't be changed. My answer to that is probably not. Right. That is really good. All right. Since I stole your number four, I think it was, what, what's your, what's your number five then Jason? Hmm. Well, I, I think I would say that people think about it being very private is a privacy based solution. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it is anything but private. I think we talked in one of the first uh, other or other podcasts about bridge events. It's great that, you know, well, I'm represented by a key, but eventually I got to exchange that and put that money in my, my bank account or use it to buy a car, which then gets delivered to me. And, and all of a sudden, all of my, uh, my history, you know, comes alive, so to speak. Now there, there are these anonymization tumblers and those type of things. Well, and to that point, I think that's actually the majority of transactions. Right? Yeah. I think it's, it's a vast majority of the transactions on the blockchain are meant to just try to anonymize. So if, if 80% of the activity is to try and anonymize, I think it was 90 what, yeah. is what I have. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Sorry, uh, go ahead. 90% of transactions are trying to anonymize. That's right. What's happening through these tumblers and, and coin exchanges and other things. Well, like maybe that should tell you exactly how private that it really is. Yeah. Well, I think j just to play off that, there was a recent uh, court ruling, um, U.S. Magistrate Judge Zia, and I'm not going to get the right last name right, Farkoui, something to that effect. In, in the actual opinion, the legal opinion from the court stated, virtual currencies is traceable. Yeah, just like Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees, the myth of virtual currency's anonymity refuses to die. 
this belief that among the the random populace that hey, if I do something in in blockchain or Bitcoin or Ethereum, then it's all secret, it's all secure. It's just not true. It's just fundamentally not true. Absolutely, and you know I think that's that's largely the case for all of them. You know, you know, some that's some of the cryptocurrency, but I think that it applies to NFTs and and these other things. And in point. It goes back to the open and transparent. They are very open and transparent, right? right. And and open and transparent is a different design uh, principle than complete privacy. Now, you know, there's some security by obscurity by hashing and and you know private key or you know, public key addressing and, and those type things. But again, ultimately, you just have to be able to find out one transaction where you know who someone yeah. is and the open and transparency immediately works against you. Does it mean you want something in the real world? You're going to have those events. Right. You have yeah. to. Once it, you want something external you know, to the block, to the metaverse. We'll use that phrase. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go on to the next one that I have here. I think it's number seven, which is in essence, and in, in playing off that legal point a little bit, this is all obviously very new territory to the point that the legal system certainly has not caught up even a little bit. <laughs> and it's really hard to know what they're going to do when they do finally get caught up. Case in point, Coinbase just recently filed their, their latest 10Q. And in there, they stated, this is a literal quote from their 10Q. So this is the SEC filings, right? And this is a warning to all investors who might own Coinbase the stock, right? It said specifically, because custodial held crypto assets may be considered to be property of a bankruptcy estate in the event of a bankruptcy, the crypto assets we hold, that is, that is Coinbase, we hold in custody on behalf of our customers, so that's your money they're holding for you in that, in that wallet, could be subject to bankruptcy proceedings, and the customers, the people who bought this from Coinbase, right, the, the actual coins and are holding them there, the customers could be treated as general unsecured creditors. In short, should Coinbase go under in their 10Q filing, they're warning all investors and people who have bought and hold crypto in their wallets that whatever assets they have there might just be seized by other debtors or creditors, excuse me, other creditors in this case. Well, that's what happened in 1929, right? And <laughs> as a result, the government created the FDIC. And that's uh, right. And so there's no FDIC for the blockchain. That's right. I think it's terrible because today a lot of people are using that as some alternative investment mechanism that's supposed to in theory, have negative beta with the stock market that uncorrelated or at least oppositely correlated would be the ideal here, right? And in reality, we're finding that's not true, but that's a separate issue. More importantly, though, they're putting their real money in this thing. It's an investment that has some normal investment type class, asset class type behavior, and it just doesn't. And I think that's that's really concerning. And just one of the many ways that the legal system has yet to decide what's really going on here well, and what we're going to do about it. Well, I think people actually, it's worth, I think they actually treat it as if it's a commodity, mm. right? You know, as gold, sure. you know, or something like that, that is uh, tangible asset. Exactly. And as a store of value that is not subject to enormous swings and loss. And like, like you said, it, it tends to, it has been tending to track you know, now with, with the stock market more than anything. So as an investment, but yeah, I agree. It's the lack of precedent is, is, uh, you know, concerning because there's a lack of precedent and that's somewhat of a obvious statement, but you know, who knows, you know, what, what may come down. And until there's some body of, you know, uh, of case law, for example, 
around how certain things are treated, then you you, you get to be the lucky one to find out. <laughs> yeah. And that's not going to be quick. I think it's the other thing just worth mentioning, right? Like if you're, if you're a CIO, if you're thinking about doing something, even as an individual, frankly, if you're thinking about doing something in this space, just realize clarity is not right around the corner. These problems are not going to be solved in the next months or, or even years, frankly. It's going to take probably a decade minimum would be my best guess. All right, Jason, number eight from you. Are we up to eight already? I think so. Yeah, more. We can. We can, here, I'll go. I'll go back one. We'll call this one number seven point one, and then I get a few more. How about that? Uh, <laughs> you know, I. There's a lot of talk about private blockchains within our customer base. Okay. You know, and I think there's a, again, a misunderstanding about what, what, private means. What they really mean is permissioned. Right. In other words, we own it and it's hidden from everybody else and only we can connect to it. Mm. Now, those solutions actually, I think, can be fairly valuable for customers, right? But because they provide a kind of immutable ledger and they can be built using other fault tolerance and, and consensus mechanisms than proof of work. And so they can be not as. You know, wait, they can be much more efficient. They don't have to worry about the anyone connecting and taking over. And so they don't have to put in all of those inefficiencies. So they can be, I think, good solutions. I, I think that conception is actually, or, or idea about the private blockchain is actually correct. The misconception about that though, is that you'll then get all the other benefits that the public ones get. Right. What do you mean by that? In other words, well, the public ones have all of these benefits that they get, all these pros they get for the trade-offs they make. So we're going to deploy a system with a different set of trade-offs, right? So we won't have any of the cons. Well, that's great, but you won't have any of the pros either. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's yeah. that's really interesting. So, for example, you know, they say, well, we'll have our private one, uh, but we'll have some business partner be able to just connect to and 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 you know, get data and put data onto it well not if it's entirely private and and you know not open and and permissioned now you may have to give them permission and you know you then you have to maybe build communities you know uh, of of trading partners or whatever they were all permissioned but those kind of things exist today Right, they exist today. You know, in the airline industry, with the the distribution, the GDS distribution platforms are a prime example of that. Where lots of airlines go and they they openly, you know, or they connect with the GDSs and share inventory and and other type of information. What, which is great, right? And it's a it makes a very seamless experience. For example, if you're flying on one airline and you connect and you have to get your bags transferred and or get moved onto another airline and get the ticket refunded. All of those mechanisms exist and they're, you know, they're very efficient. They've been around for 50 or 60 years. Some might, that know the airline technology might uh, argue with that efficient comment, but they are <laughs> extremely efficient compared to the blockchain. And so are we going to replace 50 or 60 years of, of technology with something? Well, if you say, well, we to get all of the benefits of the open platform, sure. But then we get all the problems. We can't scale that kind of thing. Like, okay, well, when let, let's 
let's don't do that. Then let's keep it private. Well, then you got to really ask yourself, then why go through the cost of converting if you're going to keep it all just like it is today? Maybe it's just slightly different technology. Right. Well, I think that that's related to one of mine, which was, which is, I suppose, a lot of people are under the the idea, the notion that this technology is novel, which, which it is. There's there's nothing wrong with that. It is novel. But that novel technology solves known problems that we couldn't solve before. And I think that's the part that it gets confusing to me. Specifically, they always reference the case you just had with like airlines or they'll, they'll often talk about healthcare, I think is the most common one here. Like, hey, if only I could have all my healthcare records in one place. And I agree, that's a, that's a noble cause and that would be terrific. The thing that I think gets overlooked in that example is, frankly, all the technology to get your healthcare records in one place exists today. There's nothing technologically difficult about that from known systems that aren't blockchain. The difficulty lies in getting organizations, doctors' offices, payers, insurers, et cetera, to actually want to invest in a standard that everybody could use, want to invest in the technology back office, front office, et cetera, that would be required to actually share this. It's not a problem with encryption. That's easy. We have HIPAA. We understand how to do this reasonably well. Apple, you know, certainly with the wallet, health wallet, we saw with COVID, we've seen examples where they could, if somebody's sufficiently motivated, easily share that back to a central platform in a central way through APIs or whatever. It's not a problem that we could, couldn't solve today if people actually wanted to solve it. They just don't seem to want to solve it. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, there's other priorities and you know, companies have other priorities for, for holding that data. Now that, that gets people upset and that's why they want to do it. But you know, they, they don't like that, but then like, well, the alternative, right, is to start a different company to do that, that, that does use some of the blockchain technologies. And then you have some responsibility in that. Again, it's a big, it's a big complex ecosystem that is somewhat chaotic and like, well, let's go replace these giant portions of it. Okay. That's going to have a lot of unintended consequences and probably a lot of them on you as the user. For example, like if, if we were to say like, we're going to have a blockchain that's going to have all your medical records and doctors can't access it unless you give them the private key or public key, excuse me. And like, okay, great. Well, I show up to the hospital and I've been in a car wreck and I'm unconscious. <laughs> right. And they would really like to know what type of blood I have. Right. Like, Oh, well, we didn't think about that use case. And that's it. There are so many of these back to you know, the earlier point. There are so many external use cases and, and situations that have to be thought through. And a lot of these systems, this is a, 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 a maybe a little bit of a systems philosophy uh, that I have is all of these systems have evolved, you know, and it, you know, it, and, and I use that in, in, you know, the Darwinian sense of they've evolved by the external pressures around them. Mm. And you know, that is why they're shaped this way. Mm-hmm. Well, because we don't like that shape of those things does not mean that those external pressures don't exist. And likely anything we put to replace it is going to get shaped by the same external forces. Yeah. That's really good. I have one more. How many more do you have here, Jason? I'm done. So okay. you can go ahead. Well, here's, here's my last one. And, and look, let me just be really clear. You know, I'm a data guy. 
this is the one that I have the least data about. It's more of a gut than anything, but I'm gonna share some specific data points with you and, and tell you what I think this. But it's always concerning to me when I see so much hype and so much energy around something actively hyping it, energy put it into hyping a product. It always makes me wonder, is this really fraud? And what I mean by that is, let, let me give you a couple of examples. The first one comes from, again, the founder of the founder of Terra just recently doing something kind of interesting. So as, as you know, Terra has, has effectively folded and it's a bit confusing. I don't understand. So what his solution is, is to effectively create a new coin. This would be, by the way, this would be his third attempt at creating a coin. And he says, well, don't, don't worry. All you people who had invested before, I'm going to take care of you because I'm going to create a new, a new currency, a new coin. And I'm just going to, because it's not real anyway, in some sense, I'm just going to give you some of the new one. And, and there'll be some investing periods around this. So you can't just immediately liquidate it or whatever, whatever. Just, you know, all you people vote for this and we're going to, we're going to hard fork and make a whole new currency. The idea that somebody can have their money stolen and the solution in perhaps by, because of bad design, I won't get into that, but have all their money effectively erased. I'll, I'll use less, less, less uh, aggressive words here. Have all their money erased for whatever reason. And the solution is the same people are just going to create a new one and just give you back your money in some sense seems crazy to me. Like, <laughs> it does seem a little crazy. Like what is yeah. happening? I do give those guys the benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm sure they were not maliciously trying to do that. It was probably, again, these unforeseen circumstances, Absolutely. errors in coding. My question would be, what makes you think you've got it all right this time? Yeah. Right? Third time's the, the charm, Jason. Exactly. So, of but course, there's the, going to be other things that you and haven't I think it's thought that, of. It's the, exactly that confidence or, or, or question mark arrogance that makes me so worried. Another good example, uh, Mike and, uh, Michael Owen, uh, some famous sports person that I don't really know. That's okay, though. Um, he, he's recently talked about launching some new NFTs. And his claim on Twitter explicitly, quote unquote, his NFTs will be the first ever that cannot lose their initial value. So as we've seen many NFTs, they're worth a lot of money, they spike up, they are worth something, and then suddenly they're not worth a lot. And the question is like, how in the world could you, Michael Owen, guarantee to anybody who might own your NFTs that that will never lose value? And the answer is really his business partner kind of jumped in and said, well, we can't guarantee then say that you won't lose anything. We can't really do that. So at least he has somebody next to him who's trying to like level set this a little bit. But his point, I think, was we're going to design the NFTs back to smart contracts and some cleverness you can do here such that they can never be sold for less than you purchased, which is like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting, except actually it's much worse because now you end up in a binary. Either you make money when you sell this NFT or you can't sell it at all. They become very illiquid assets, in other words. So maybe you paid a million dollars for it and it'll never be sold for less than a million dollars, but it also just won't be sold in that case, period, full stop. And so again, like there's this hubris, yeah. this like this belief that like, well, I I've thought of something clever that could solve all these problems. Well, yeah, that's the the difference of someone saying like, uh, I think this is worth a million dollars, and everyone else thinking it's worth zero. It's like the value is what someone's willing to not pay for it, not what you're willing to sell it for. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> and, right. And, um, but I, I would separate. I think you you hit on something there, but I would I would separate three different instances or. or potentially four, okay. right? You know, one is pure fraud. Mm -hmm. Another one is hubris, right? It's like, I'm way, you know, 
way better at this than I think I am. One of them is ignorance. I, you know, uh, I think I know every, this is more of the Dunning Kruger effect type. Yeah, right. You know, I think I know everything, but I really, really don't. And then there are probably some people that are, are have a very valid, informed, you know, uh, use, right? Which it, we'll call those the, that, the not. I think the other three are really what causes the hype. It's a lot of fraud, mm -hmm. right? A lot of hubris, a lot of ignorance, and maybe some appropriate uh, excitement. And it's a, and I don't have any data on this either, but I, I do think about you know like the Gartner hype cycle and all of these, you know I think what drives all of that hype are the first three, and and I think in this one though, so I'll, I'll excuse the the hubris and ignorance is just natural part of hu human nature, but the and new technology in and general. new technology in general, right? Sure. But but the fraud is the one that gets you know is concerns me most because again I yeah, I mentioned it earlier. 1.8 billion in fraud just this year. Mm -hmm. You see, there was another crazy, crazy article about, you know, influencers on on TikTok and YouTube and these other things being paid, paid millions to essentially do pump and dump schemes right. on these things. And you know the um, yeah, it was the, it was the article in Motherboard specifically, yeah, Motherboard, right? right. Yeah, uh -huh. where where effectively Duncan, this lady who who does this for a living, she's a full time online crypto and NFT promoter. That's her that's her title. Talks about doing exactly this and some of the back office ways in which they actually orchestrate what is effectively a boiler room, <laughs> like <laughs> those types of pump and dump schemes. And um, you know, anytime she said specifically that she's earning more in two months than she typically made in an entire year. And all she's doing is effectively promoting these things or creating NFTs and selling them very quickly and then sort of getting out, if you will. And anytime you see that type of money being exchanged, it it always feels to me like, hey, something doesn't isn't above board now. Like this doesn't nobody spends their own money it in that way, if you will. Um, no company would ever do that in this way, it's a sort of yeah. extravagant way. It's created a very, you know, because let's say, you know, anyone can create a token or a mm -hmm. currency, sure. right? Like pre-Bitcoin, pre pre-crypto, if someone, you know, took out an ad in the New York Times and made the announcement, I'm starting my own currency, right? <laughs> right, Jason Bucks, yeah. Like what would the reaction of that to been? You know, this person's crazy. Uh well, now, you know, there are, I couldn't even count the number of, you know, these things that are going on. And, and so it's created a situation where there's like no barrier to entry. And I don't just mean technology barrier, but I mean like barrier or willingness of other people to participate barrier. Like someone who would have read that, you know, 20 years ago, but would have been like, hmm. I don't know about that. Starting your own currency, uh, that seems a little bit strange. <laughs> and, you know, there, you know, today it doesn't seem strange. You know, I, I think a lot of that, that goes, maybe I'll add another category uh, from fraud and hubris and ignorance to, to wishfulness, mm. right? People want this to be, like, want this entirely egalitarian solution with no downsides right right and so i'm i want it to be true and so i'm going to invest in it but I, I think all of those things combine to make this significant hype uh 
but your your focus on fraud, I think, is absolutely um, spot on because you know even if like think about our clients, we're a consulting firm, right? So our, our clients are are not trying to do anything fraudulent, right? We wouldn't work with them if they did. We have great great customers with great values that we like working with. But it doesn't mean that someone can't easily, you know, you see this with a lot of the phishing attacks and other things, present to the world as if they are, right, one of our kinds. Just like, you know, you see this, they, people do spear phishing emails and say, hey, I'm your credit card company, click, right. click it back in. But when all of the system, when everyone is trying to do all things on these systems that are much more susceptible to fraud it's you know and have this kind of money floating around it's just a a natural attractant no, i think that's exactly right and i think the people who are actually genuinely interested in the technology and, and the things it could bring about are are effectively the targets that everybody else is going after and we've created this honeypot this this huge pot of literal money that has lots of exploitable features to it that attracts everybody in the world, ranging from government entities like North Korea that's been you know, talked about a lot in, in the press about how hacking is now a major part of their economy, to individual hacker consortiums who need to fund their operations, taking advantage of this massive honeypot. And the people that they're exploiting are more than likely not other criminals. They're actually exactly the people you described, these these entities who are trying to do the right thing, who have good intentions and high integrity, but don't fully understand all of the risks of this new technology. You, you just said something that, that gave me a thought. You said, you know, taking people's actual money. And, I, and it made me think, you know, that is a bit of a difference between the hacking that we see on the blockchain versus traditional hacking. I'll use the analogy of like, if I stole jewelry, I would have to fence it somehow, right, to get mm. actual money for it, right? Right, and in a lot of ways, that's what hacking is today. Well, if I get into someone, I can get their data, their account data, their you know loan data, whatever. I still have to someone find someone to buy that, right? I got to sell your credit. I, I could, I guess, I could use your credit card data, but you know your identity, those type of things. Most of the time, you try to sell them, and there's some, you know, you don't get. Right, uh, you know, one for one in terms of value, but when you still, you know, it's the difference of stealing cash. When you steal someone's cash, it actually has that value. You've got to get no one else involved to, to fence it, so to speak. Oh, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting observation that I hadn't connected myself directly. But you're right; it's a bit like, you know, the 1930s and bank robberies when you could go raid a vault, and that was a thing, and that's mm -hmm. what a lot of criminals did because again, there was this massive trove of literal cash, and it required a central authority. Uh, yeah. namely the FBI, to get really good at preventing bank robbery and tracking those people down to make the economics of that proposition very different. And yeah. I wonder if the same is now required for this to work ultimately. I don't know. Yeah, I guess maybe a different way to, to say what I just said is it as you try to secure systems, the goal is to make it more expensive to get in than the value you get out. And what makes that somewhat feasible today is that there's a discount value on the data you get as to what you're able to to use and sell it for. Sure. Right. But when it's you know digital cash, there's no discount value. So it's harder to keep the you know, forget the fact that okay, they're open and it's easier to break in, but you know, but whatever the cost to get in is, there's less there's no discount on the 
it's a the, the liquid value yeah. on, on it's completely liquid yeah thank you and so uh it just it, it does change the economics a bit that's a really good point yeah yeah i mean encrypting somebody's file server is only good if they're going to pay you for the decryption key eventually right if they've backed up to the point of just a good security practice if you have a good backup you don't need to pay them and guess what they wasted a bunch of energy and time and no value so in short, if I were to try and summarize everything that we've covered today, there are there are a lot of issues and problems that have to be solved, ranging from the inefficiency, the explicit trade-off of inefficiency and scale, the decentralization and trustless environments that we've created here, the, the high risk of loss, if you will. This idea that while we're trading, while we're giving up the sort of central authority of governments, we're trading that for a central authority of whoever the miners happen to be and that consolidation that's inevitably going to happen to to effectively like the laws haven't caught up yet and and that's a problem because there's a lot of ways of externalities and other features that frankly could be exploited and, and will continue to be exploited for some time until we figure out how to design the system more efficiently and more robustly all the way to the point of there's a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm around this topic which i think is good in general but it, it does make me personally nervous that there's just so much hype effectively around this and, and part of that no doubt as we've seen over a billion dollars this year defrauded from from people who put their money into this a lot of that is literal fraud and so i think all of those topics combine to a world that it's still exciting i'm still interested i'm still see i'm curious to see where it goes but it's really early in the space and i think that again we just caution people to be thoughtful <laughs> about what they're doing here don't don't jump in both feet first without a good guide and be aware of, is it really necessary to be the other part of that? So again, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And thanks for joining me as always, Jason. Um, for those of you who'd like to learn more about blockchain or, in, or other topics, feel free to visit the insights page at Cudera.com. Thanks for listening. And I hope you have a great day and we'll join us next time. <laughs>